0: This is Woman Being Podcast, and we are about to do another episode of Not Your Mom's Book Club. (laughs) Today we've got uh, whiskey in the house.
1: What kind of whiskey you got? I've got Jameson. I have, it's technically an apple liqueur with bourbon infused into it. Oh, And I've
0: got some classic Tennessee honey whiskey. And the reason that we've resorted to the hard liquors is because of our book today. It's called (laughs) Pure by Linda K. Klein. This book will like, mess you up in great ways and in terrible ways, um, but that's, you know, all worthwhile because it's gonna bring on some really great discussions. And we're excited to dive into that in a little bit. What? This is Woman Being,
1: where we explore thoughts and opinions and have the freedom to change our minds. Without expectation or judgment, we will hold a safe space and support
2: each other as we navigate together in the form of feminine.
0: So cheers, ladies.
1: Uh Cheers. This
0: is um, our first Not Your Moms book club of season two. We've got the whiskey. We've got the book. Um, For anyone that doesn't know, I'm just going to introduce Pure real quick. Um, This is an incredible book. Um, about, I guess I'll read the tagline because it kind of says it all. It's um, inside the evangelical movement that shamed a generation of young women and how I broke free. So pure is about Ooh. purity culture and how it affects women in their adulthood and in their sexual relations after their adolescence and sometimes during their adolescence. Um, from from the mm, the small like um, anxiety and. You know, nervousness around dating and sex to the extreme, like vaginismus and PTSD symptoms and abuse, um, abuse and mm-hmm. just very extreme um, reactions to the purity movement. So um, I actually wanted to start us off with a little excerpt. Oh, we didn't know. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's just... We um, both
2: take a sip and you're <laughs> like, oh, you're doing an excerpt.
0: Let's take a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just reading through some of the notes that I took. And this excerpt, I think, kind of um, encapsulates the topic that we're talking about really well in terms of Linda K. Klein, the writer, and the journey that she goes on um, to interview, I think, over, like, hundreds of women. Mm-hmm. She ends up interviewing over a 10-year period. So yeah. a lot of research went into this. Um. She, let's see. Where do we start? Um, I went to church, Sunday school, and youth group weekly, to Bible studies, retreats, mission trips, conferences, trainings, and concerts regularly, and to youth group organized parties, movie nights, sleepovers, concerts of prayer, and church lock-ins whenever they were offered. And they were offered a lot. Sound familiar, anybody? <laughs> I sang and played guitar in the youth group praise band, started and led a very well-attended Bible study at my public junior high school, launched a girl's Bible study for anyone in the city, which I led out of my parents' basement, and made it a habit to talk to everyone I could about how they could ask Christ into their hearts and experience the spiritual awakening I had experienced— I got up early every morning to do daily devotionals before school, read the Bible before bed each night so its wisdom would settle into my subconscious as I slept and continued my childhood practice of trying to pray my way through each day. And it may have stayed that way had I not been a girl. Mm. And so um, I think... What she her point here is that the purity movement has disproportionately affected women and put women accountable for the actions of men and themselves and um, a very heavy burden on them overall in maintaining their purity and maintaining the purity of men around them. And so, um, yeah, it's just an incredible book that features some amazing stories of, of women and what they went through. So. That's kind of the the brief synopsis. Is there anything I missed or you guys want to add to that?
2: I mean, I'll just say that one thing that I think was very impressive about the book is that uh, it does seem very, very well researched. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has a lot of like Uh, studies that she references within it she has obviously done a ton of research she's written this over a whole decade of getting these firsthand interviews with women that were from her own community growing up but also from women all over the country it does specifically hone in on the predominantly white cisgender female Christian experience Mm -hmm. in like suburban America Um, and she does recognize that and recognizes sort of the narrow scope of her research in that but it's a very valuable perspective that she's bringing forward Um, and I think it's worth researching that Um, and you could write 10 more books about every other subset that (laughs) that um, would fall into Mm -hmm. this of like people of color being affected by purity culture or whatever Mm -hmm. Um, or LGBTQ plus communities experience what they could probably write 10 more books about it so um I think it's definitely narrow in that way but also very wide-reaching In that she she definitely strives to like um bring in as much research as possible Mm -hmm. so it felt very like credible to me in that way
0: yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Yeah, and she does touch like a little bit on how um white cares or not charismatic but white evangelical church culture kind of continues to carry out that sort of colonial mindset and infuse a lot of its teachings and practices into churches all over the world mm-hmm. um, of all sorts of different races, nationalities, etc. And so um, although this is very much the white experience, to just briefly touch on how like kind of our church colonialism does actually affect churches of color and churches around the world. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I can only imagine like... I, I would love to read the other books that she has. Yeah. No, I She's agree. other books? No, would like if, if she if, if, there oh, okay. if, existed, uh, if there were 10 just, more. Existed. Sorry. It's getting to me already. She, <laughs> it's on <so>. one step. like <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> yeah. I have another one. I mean, I I agree. I think I also really like the holistic approach. She touches on the emotional. She touches a lot on shame. She quotes Brené Brown quite a bit and other doctors and studies. Um she touches on the physiological. I mean, she one account is one woman literally went into anaphylactic shock and was in the hospital. She was hospitalized. Like a um, panic attack brought on. Like yeah. a literal. Yeah. Anyway, so I feel like she covers how it is embedded into every aspect of our lives. Those of us who I feel like the appropriate term to use would be survived the mm-hmm. purity movement. Mm-hmm. Um and then, yeah, I also really appreciate how towards the end of the book, she really kind of hones in on LGBTQ+, uh, because it affects all of us. So, but yeah, I think you summarized it really well. Well, thank you.
0: I appreciate that. <laughs> I um, really love this book. I um, I think I saw it on someone's Instagram story, like, mm-hmm. a few years back, and I bought it on Amazon Newsbooks, and, <laughs> um, and I – this is a book that you pick up, and – you have to set back down and just like chew on it for a while. Cause it's for me, for anyone who grew up in the purity movement, it can be very triggering. Mm -hmm. And there were so many experiences that she laid out that I had experienced or had watched happen. And it was just validating, but also very like re-traumatizing in some ways to like read some of the um, experiences. So um I was like, as soon as these ladies asked me, what are we going to do next for Not Your Mom's Book Club? I was like, pure. Mm-hmm. That's what we got to talk about. Um, and as you guys know, if you listen to this podcast regularly, I talk about modesty and purity culture and church abuse a lot. And so um, it for sure is up the alley of things that I'm passionate about. So mm-hmm. what I guess uh, to, to kick this off, what really hit home for both of you when you opened up this book? And that's the end of the question. What hit home for you?
2: I feel like this has to do with uh, purity culture, but also just with, like, general dealing with religion. (laughs) Um, And uh, one of the things that super resonated to me in the book was the way that she talked about going through the experience of deconstruction. Mm -hmm. So there's one quote that I'd love to read. I feel like I'm going to read a lot of quotes because there's (laughs) so many good ones. And, like, so many times where I just, like, read things to people because you need to hear this. (laughs) But she says... um, this really great description of deconstruction on page 178 of the Kindle edition. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Always. At this point, I've just got to say it, you know. when um, she's talking about, like, how you sort of feel like um, sort of almost like you're falling off a cliff mm. going into deconstructing. And uh, she says, we yearn to be who we are, to live honestly and authentically. We start, so we start to run. Toward what? We don't know. And then one day, like Wiley Coyote spinning his legs at top speed, we realized that we have run off the edge of a cliff. We had been sure that there was solid ground beneath us just a moment ago. But suddenly we look down and there's nothing no old worldview, no new worldview, just space. But unlike Wiley Coyote, we do not fall, we float. Because we didn't just lose our grounding, we lost our gravity, our entire way of being, of understanding ourselves and the world around us. We have no compass, no sense of direction. We don't know what's up, what's down, what's forward, or what's back. We are confused, and all too often we are alone. We float above an abyss, and as the Bible tells us, it was before the world was created. Darkness is over the surface of the deep. This is what I call the gap. The expanse. Oh, gosh. The freaking Kindle moved me away from it.
0: The gap. The That's gap. That. I just want to <laughs> hold you
2: guys in suspense. Okay, this is what we call the gap. The expanse of space between the way in which we used to look at ourselves and the world and the way in which we will come to see ourselves and the world once we found our footing on the other side of the ravine. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was a really, really good way of describing deconstruction. And I think that especially with uh, deconstructing purity culture, it often feels like, like you're sort of jumping off of a cliff and saying um this thing that we've held so so tightly I might actually not hold on to anymore and uh that's scary and it does feel very isolating it feels very um lonely like I've especially noticed even in um the this past year starting to like really like date again and like Navigating that, which you can hear more about if you listen to our episode on <laughs> online dating, which should be out by the time this episode comes out, <laughs> um, it, it feels a lot like, oh, shoot, like I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> and I don't know what is right anymore. And I'm hovering over the abyss and maybe not falling, but I don't feel like I have a footing, mm-hmm. you know, and it feels like, oh, what what do I actually think about "Quote unquote purity" or just sexuality, and what do I think about um, what's acceptable and what's okay and what is "quote unquote" sinful? Um, it it feels like I'm having to reevaluate that all over again. Um, and before I didn't even really evaluate it, I was just told these are the rules. And mm-hmm. so it was like, OK, great. Mm-hmm. I'll follow the rules. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, I don't know if those rules were good. So <laughs> do I follow the rules? How much of the rules do I keep and how much do I throw away? And mm-hmm. and what what is right? And is it the right thing for everyone? Probably not. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that's, that's one thing that resonated with me a lot. There were a lot of things that did resonate to me and some things that really didn't because I wasn't raised from a very young age in purity culture but it that was one thing that was like this feels like it's putting to words exactly what I felt mm-hmm. and um it yeah it it feels like it describes that limbo mm-hmm. you know
0: yeah 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 and for for context for anyone who's listening um Linda K. Klein is um self-identifying Christian, but no longer in the evangelical movement. So her um, expression of Christianity is probably much different than most people would recognize um, who grew up in the evangelical movement. Mm -hmm. And she interviews a swath of believers, former believers and um, kind of Mm in-betweeners. And so there's a, a wide variety of perspectives that she explores of people who have either left the church completely or who have deconstructed and Kind of moved on to like different types of um, religious practices, mm-hmm. but still within the Christian realm, and then also people who have stayed in the Christian um, circles and the evangelical circles. So um, it for sure explores deconstruction a lot. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it it feels like to me purity and your sexual being as a whole is so central. Um, growing up in the church for women, Mm -hmm. that it's really hard to separate the two. It's such a huge piece of it that it's like deconstructing one feels like deconstructing everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Well, there's actually another quote that she has. I'm probably
0: thinking of the same quote that you're thinking of, I feel like.
2: Really? Yes. About how the church and, oh, what was it?
0: Like church and body ethics are intertwined. Yeah. Yes. Here, let's pull this up. This is an excerpt, actually, from Jessica Valenti in The Purity Myth, Mm. and um, it says, Staying pure and innocent is touted as the greatest thing we can do. However, equating this inaction with morality is not only problematic because it continues to tie women's ethics to our bodies, but also is downright insulting because it suggests that women can't be moral actors. Instead, we're defined by what we don't do. Our ethics are the ethics of passivity. Mm, I do have that one underlined, Ooh. but that is not the one I was thinking Ooh, of. Oh, what's your one? So, no, I,
2: first, let's talk about that. Okay, Because yeah, yeah. I love that. Like, it's, I mean, I don't love it, but I love it. <laughs> um, it's talking about how, like, our ethics become an ethics of passivity. Like, mm-hmm. that really hit me, where it's like, oh, we're working off of what we don't do yeah. instead of what we do. And I feel like so much of Christianity is about that. It's like, well, we don't do this. We don't do this. Mm-hmm. We, we don't accept this. Or we don't like this. Or we don't like these people. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, I, I don't think that's biblical yeah. <laughs> when you look at the example Absolutely. of Christ. Um, and I don't think that that's helpful as just a way to live your life in a healthy way, yeah. uh, to, to focus on negatives I think that the example that we see in the Bible is actually focusing on who do we include. Like we do mm, include yeah. the helpless, we do include the lost, we do include the widows, the orphans. Like we do love people even if they are prostitutes, quote unquote, or if they're in sexual sin or whatever. Like we yeah. we do actually, um, and we we do accept all. Really, is what you see in the Bible, yeah. and so that's a a, a faith of
0: of action, Mm -hmm. not of passivity. Mm -hmm. In some cases, I would say men are given more a faith of action. They're allowed to become pastors, become leaders, like do the mission, Mm -hmm. you know, like preach the sermon, whatever. Mm -hmm. And women's um, role is like to follow the whims of the man, essentially. Very passive.
2: Yeah, Yeah, for sure. The quote that I was thinking of is on page 11 of the Kindle edition. (laughs) (laughs) It says, I couldn't always tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. I saw both lie, both steal, both love, and both unselfishly give to others. But one tangible thing we could point to as evangelicals was that we didn't have sex before marriage. There was that. There was always that. Which is why, I believe, the threat of losing that so-called sexual purity seemed so grave. Hmm. Were we to have sex outside of marriage, what? (laughs) What? Were we to have sex outside of marriage, could we even call ourselves Christians anymore? Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's this idea that, like, Christianity has become so wrapped up in a message of this supposed purity Mm -hmm. that it is defining. And how could you even call yourself a Christian if you're not that? Because there's nothing else differentiating the church and the world, if Mm -hmm. you will. And, like, that to me is is showing – how much, like, so much of the church has actually become removed from, like, the teachings of Jesus yep. and the Bible. Like, the fact that they're, the only differentiation is what you do with your bodies in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. Like, that is not the, the message of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's actually, I mean, I've already said this, but it's, it, we should be, if you if christians truly should be set apart then they should be set apart in the way that they love people in a Mm -hmm. radical way in the way that they care for people in the way that they're generous and giving not in whether or not they're having sex yeah that just doesn't that seems like um it's it's a sign of of the way the church has become corrupted to me
0: Mm. yeah those are good
1: thoughts Those a great thoughts kelly what hit home for you well, I will preface with I am in a very angry season of life right now. <laughs> I am angry about everything. She mad. What's I up, literally showed up to our weekly podcast meeting with a Dr Pepper, and I was just like, "Look, this is the sign I've given up." Um, so <laughs> I don't know. Dr Pepper's great. Like, I have no probably idea. Probably the best,
2: like mainstream soda. I, I would mean, say.
1: arguably yes. I just am, It is correct. I am normally. The person that's like, oh, it's gonna sparkling water, like, nah. anyway, healthy, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but um, I don't know. I'm just, I'm angry about a lot of things right now, and this added fuel to my fire. Um, I definitely cried a lot while mm-hmm. reading this book because it verbalized so much um, of my experience that maybe I hadn't. Uh, had the words for. And I think that's the thing that's really dangerous overall about the purity movement and maybe some aspects of Christianity altogether is just that so much of it is like unspoken expectations. And everyone feels it and experiences it, but no one's really able to like point to it and be like, that's it right there. Um, I think even within purity culture, what's shocking to me is how well known it is to those in Christianity, in evangelicalism, and those who have left. But people, like, I recently ran into someone the other day, and I made some backhanded comment, like, oh, you know, because purity culture. And they were just like, what? They're like,
2: "Oh, what culture?
1: <laughs> they were like, what are you talking about? And I was like, oh, you know, like, just the whole message around the church that you should abstain from sex until marriage. And there's this whole culture around it. And they're just like, they teach that? I was like, holy shit. Like, some yeah. people genuinely don't know, and I think that's what's crazy. But a few of the things that hit home for me were, um, in Chapter 2, I believe it is, there is a lot about a sexual assault um, that became very well-known and prominent. I believe there was a New York Times article written about it in 2014. Um, and that really hit home because... Um, of the way this survivor's parents reacted. And it was like, oh, well, you have two options. Like, you can either be disowned or you can move home and live the way we think you should live because this obviously happened to you because of something you did. And I think that's the most bullshit thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, In fact, one of her – one of the perpetrators admitted that – he was like, yeah, I raped you. Mm. And that's just – um, the most abhorrent thing I could imagine a parent doing to someone that has survived such an atrocity. Um, so there's that. I think I was also not taken aback. My, my opinion, uh, my scope, if you will, was widened when she talked about, um, she did a chapter focusing around a someone named Eli, who uh, is a transgender man, was born, I believe his name was Elizabeth, and she knew growing up. And realizing how much the purity culture actually affects the LGBTQ plus community. I mean, obviously, there's the messaging around you shouldn't be gay, or whatever. But also the reality that this person transitioned and still cannot have normal relationships or um, sexual encounters normal quote unquote I mean what is normal right but Mm -hmm. he feels held back by this purity message he received when he was um, living as a female and I think that really widened my eyes and my understanding of like holy cow like just because someone transitions does not mean that their messaging is left behind um, and I think that's something I'll definitely be thinking about more in the future. Um, and then finally, yeah, it was the realizing the extremes of reactions that people can have. I mean, women, a woman going into anaphylactic shock, uh, after sex, uh, ending up in the hospital, vaginismus, which we've all talked about, I feel like, um, I think for me, it made me take several steps back and really analyze, and this is also very fresh, but analyze my mental health journey because when I really started struggling emotionally and mentally is when I took a quote-unquote break after three years of a ministry school that was very intensive and took a break from church. And that is when I began to struggle because I, and I think now, started to pick apart things that I didn't feel like were true or real that I had just blindly believed my whole life because I was taught it. And so I think a lot of my mental struggle has come directly from negative purity messaging. So those are a few of the things that hit home for me. Yeah. Just to list a few.
2: Well, one thing I think about with the um, the girl that you mentioned who uh, was raped, uh, another thing that I imagine hit home for you specifically, Kellyanne, is that she worked at Victoria's Secret, mm-hmm. where y- you also worked. I did. And one of the excuses her parents gave for why she was raped, gang raped,
1: mm-hmm.
2: while blackout drunk, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, was that she was too sexual because she worked at Victoria's Secret.
1: Yeah. Yeah, actually, I would love to touch on that. And just heads up, guys, I might cry in this episode. Um, Yeah, that is, um, for me, after three years of ministry school, Victoria's Secret actually became my safe haven. Um, I empowered women. I felt beautiful every day. I felt I was excited to go to work every day. Like, who's excited to go to a retail job every single Mm day? Not many people. Um, I loved it. I felt powerful. I felt good. I felt beautiful. I felt safe. And I changed women's lives every day. And actually, when my pastor's wife back home found out that I was working, going to be working, or I was home for the summer, and I was like, yeah, I got a job at Victoria's Secret. I'm very excited. And she looked at me like I was going to be standing on a street corner. <laughs> like, she she was utter shock. Um, and I don't think that... It's – I mean, I think we all probably know you cannot correlate rape to someone being, quote, unquote, too sexual. Um, That's not actually how it works. And, yeah, that was definitely something that I struggled with because I've had in our very conservative Christian uh, majority town, I mean, women used to run in and, like, knock down signs. Women would, like – tell us that we are, you know, ruining boys because we have pornography, quote, unquote, on the walls um, or that, you know, like we're doing a horrible thing. And I'm like, first of all, how dare you? Because I literally, I will never stop saying I used to change women's lives every day. And the idea that because there's a naked woman maybe most of the time she's covered um on the wall does not mean your son is going to grow up to rape your son will grow up to rape because he is told that he can take control of a woman's body for his own pleasure and that has nothing to do with how sexual she is or isn't um so yes i felt very strongly about that very upset yeah um And, yeah, I will forever look back on that as a time of empowerment and safety while I was struggling mentally and deconstructing my Christian faith.
2: Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Oh, my gosh.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. If anything, this book helps me realize that I wasn't alone Mm -hmm. um, and that my experience was not normal, but it was um, indicative of something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So because when I first got married and we went from being, you know, sex is bad, don't have sex, suddenly having to flip that switch, which your brain is not wired to make that switch automatically overnight. Um, And actually, Linda K. Klein addresses this in the book. Um, When you are constantly equating sexual feelings with shame or fear Mm-hmm. Um, your brain actually forms pathways that um, eventually will fire at the same time, whether or not both or either is present. Or
2: If, if just one of those triggers yes, is present. If just
0: one of those triggers is present, your brain will actually fire both because it's so accustomed to equating the two. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, if you're watching a movie as a 16-year-old not supposed to have sex and you turn your head away because there's a sexual scene and you feel shame or fear, those kind of pathways are going to come with you into the marriage bed. Mm-hmm. And so when I got married, um, we had to undo some stuff, right? Like mm-hmm. we had to learn how to be sexual. I think I had stuffed my sexuality down um so deep that we had to kind of uncover it and I think in a sense I feel like I'm still uncovering it mm-hmm. um but my understanding was that oh yeah sex sex, that's normal hmm. and that was kind of like anybody I knew like that was a woman that I could talk to I mean I was 18 so like I didn't have any married friends and so right. I honestly didn't have very many resources at all yeah but like it was just like yep that's normal Like, sex is hard. Keep working at it. You're going to figure it out eventually. (laughs) And I carried that understanding that, like, oh, anytime someone gets married or has sex for the first time, it's going to suck, period. Mm -hmm. Um, For the first several months to a year, to two years or whatever. Mm. And I think what I've learned is that's actually more prevalent in the conservative Christian circles. And because that was the circle I was embedded in that was my understanding of the world but that's actually not supposed to be your body's normal response to sex when you first have sex um not that i mean maybe I mean, your it's first not like time... you'll have it
2: all figured out right the first yeah. Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah,
0: awkward yeah. and weird yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. like but... you're gonna learn but like um kind of the process shouldn't take so long or shouldn't be so arduous yes. and i know many women who had a much harder experience than i did yeah. um especially like vaginismus and things like that um, yeah. And so, yeah, I took that away from this book as like, okay, I'm not alone, and that this is not normal, mm-hmm. and the church has prioritized preventing preventing sex or sin or whatever at the expense of every woman in the congregation. Yes, like we value um, we value following the rules more than we value people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so. Um, Yeah, that's hard. Mm -hmm. That's hard to, like, come to terms with. But anyways, were there, I guess, switching gears, were there any parts of the book that, like, surprised you or were enlightening to you
1: as you went through it? None of it was fully enlightening. I would say there were portions that definitely, like, broadened my perspective, like I mentioned earlier with... um, the transgender man Eli and hearing about that. And then also just the, the ways um, the LGBTQ plus community is affected severely as well. Um, But I think a lot of it was very validating for me. Mm -hmm. It was like, Hey, this is okay. This is like, this is other people's experience. You're not broken Mm -hmm. because you had to really unlearn some stuff. I mean, I think I agree with you. I'm, I'm still unlearning a lot of stuff And, um, a lot of shame of like, you know, what it means to have a woman's body and what it means to show up sexually and, and that it's okay to, um, struggle in that at some level because essentially we were, we were programmed to, Mm -hmm. we were programmed to struggle with that. And, I think for me that was very validating. And then obviously Linda just nails just truth after truth and just goes for it. Um, so I'd say that I found very comforting.
2: Yeah. I feel like I I agree that a lot of it felt very sort of like, oh, yeah, like I sort of I mean, I obviously, as you've heard from our many episodes in this <laughs> podcast about like purity culture and modesty and all of that, like. We know it's messed up. Like, mm-hmm. we, we're aware of that. So it's not like this book was like, what? It's wrong? or It's, yeah. it's a messed up system? Oh, no, yeah. Um, so obviously there wasn't that, but it, it was more, which it's totally fine if that is your experience when you read the book. If this is, like, one of your first exposures to the idea that this could be something that's wrong, then, like, that is totally valid and, like, no shame on that. But we mm-hmm. had already, we've already walked through a lot of that deconstructing I feel like and um, for me it was a lot of sort of like affirmation like sort of thinking like oh yeah like makes sense like women are struggling sexually because of beauty culture adds up (laughs) that's what I hear from other people too (laughs) and um, one of the things though that felt particularly sort of um, I guess like validating to me especially as a single woman was that she did have, I don't know if it was a whole chapter, might have been a whole chapter that was just about masturbation, mm. um, which we've talked about a little bit on here before. But there's a few things um, that she talks about when it comes to masturbation. She's, like, interviewing a woman who has, like, gone back and forth on masturbation, like, her whole life basically and has gone between feeling super ashamed of it and then also feeling like well maybe this is just something my body needs and that's okay and 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 flip-flopping between thinking this is sinful and this is um maybe just part of my lot as a single woman (laughs) or something like that um but one thing that particularly stood out to me that she talks about is um how there's like books written about uh like premarital sexuality for Mm. boys and girls that are different, which is something I didn't really realize because I, the, pretty much the extent of like Christian books about sexuality that I've read is I Kissed Dating Goodbye and that's it. So (laughs) I haven't read these books, but on page 128 of the Kindle edition, uh, (laughs) she says, uh, the books written for females were different. Masturbation was more strictly forbidden, and an emphasized reason given for why girls and women shouldn't masturbate that I didn't see much about in the boy the books targeted at boys and men was protecting their future marriage, in part by protecting their future husband's feelings. For example, one book warned that if a girl masturbated, she might rob her future husband of the pleasure of giving her an orgasm without her stepping in and telling him what she likes— which she would have learned from masturbation. And I just see you guys, like, steaming over there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, This was really frustrating to me. Mm -hmm. And I've actually talked to guys about this. Mm. And have given me the exact opposite message which is Mm -hmm. that it is not a turn off to have a girl know what she wants to have a girl have an understanding of her body um in fact it's helpful and the the thing is is that um, this reminds me a lot of uh, the sermon that uh, we reacted to uh, where this very misogynistic pastor uh, talks about how women should act around men and just gives all these terrible, terrible pieces of advice, if you can even call it that. Give that episode a watch if you want to be enraged.
0: Um, <laughs> You're going to need some whiskey
1: for that one. Yes. that fire. He
2: talks about like... Um, this whole analogy of, like, a princess and a knight and a dragon and the princess tells the knight, like, how to slay the dragon and the knight is demasculated and, like, doesn't like the princess anymore. And this is what this makes me think of is the idea that, like, oh, if this woman, like, knows anything about her sexuality, then um, she's going to just be totally, like, unattractive to this man. Yeah. And the thing is is that uh, another thing she talks about in the book is how the – The books targeted towards boys and their sexuality, like, almost shows, like, masturbation as, like, oh, you'll probably do this, and, like, that's okay, but, like, just don't, like... Do it too much. <laughs> kind
1: of try not to. Yeah, kind of try not to. If you to. have to.
2: Yeah, but if you have to, you know, boys will be boys. Whereas for the women, it's like, don't do it or else you'll risk your entire marriage. And it will be ruined and your husband won't want to have sex with you. <laughs> and
0: it, well, it just circles back to that moral of passivity, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the idea that a man ought to know what's best for you. And, like, you are just supposed to, like, passively enter into this well, life in general, but also marriage, like, mm-hmm. and allow, you know, his leadership to take you to where you want to go. Mm. And that how somehow he's supposed to know how to, or like, give you orgasm and give you pleasure, and you are not supposed to, like, be a part of that process at all. Yeah. Mm. And it's just like, I mean, I'm not going to tell you what men like, but I know, I know, at least in my experience, men – actually like a woman who knows what she wants.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think too, it sets women up for failure, not only to be sexually frustrated and repressed and all the things, but there's this lack of ownership Mm -hmm. over her body. Yeah, And it's like, I remember when I first got married, like James would just be like, just tell me like, what's good. Tell me what you like. And I'm like, I don't even know that I'm mm-hmm. supposed to feel good and that I'm supposed mm-hmm. to like it. Mm-hmm. Like, not that I didn't consciously think that. And thankfully, we did some sexual-ish things before we got married. So it wasn't like a full truck to the face. But um, it, it, you're not owning what you have and who you are. And, I th- and this is the only part of your body that you're told not to use. You wouldn't not use your hand or both of your eyes, like, it's so bizarre that it's like, oh, everything about you should be fully present and fully um, used to the best of its ability, but not that. Well, not just that. Everything about your body belongs to you except
0: that. Except that. that. Mm. And I, yeah, I remember being so disconnected mm-hmm. from my sexual parts of myself and, like, I ignored them. Mm-hmm. Like, up until getting married. and like, that's
1: what led to your purity, right. quote-unquote, success, yeah. right? Yeah,
0: and it wasn't until I got married that I'm like, I don't even know what it looks like down there. Like, I don't even know, mm-hmm. like, what's going on down there or, like, how it works. And anyways, I think purity culture really contributes to shut it down until it's time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the fact is, like, your body is your body. Like, you don't, like, stop being hungry because you're fasting. Yep. You yeah. know? You don't, like... Stop being thirsty because you're, I don't know, dehydrated. Dehydrated. <laughs> like you, you actually need those things. Then your body like knows what it needs, mm-hmm. and so like the idea of attributing shame to your body's natural response, like it's God given response, is like bizarre.
1: Mm-hmm. It is bizarre, and and I feel bad for these beautiful men. That get married to sweet purity culture girls, and they're like, hey, just tell me what feels good. And she's like, you're just supposed to be able to do it. Right. And like, I can't imagine the pressure that is. Yeah. You know? it's a lot of pressure. It's, like, too
0: much. And I just thank the Lord that I had a husband who was, like, determined and dedicated and turned on by my success. Yep. Like, he was like, no, we're not going to have a good time until everybody's having a good time. Yep.
2: Well, that's the thing is, like, a guy who is actually, like, you know, a good, decent human being is going to, like, enjoy your enjoyment mm-hmm. and and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Like, you want to pleasure one another. Mm-hmm. And so why would you, like, it's, it's not the idea that, like, they're just tr- having a transaction with you yes, and just trying to, like, get this endorphin high. Yeah. And this rush from having sex with you and then they just, like, toss you to the side and you can go make dinner for them or something. Yeah. Like, that's not yeah. the way that, like, a real relationship works. And if you are with someone who is a decent, like, non-sociopathic human being, then, like, you should want that's the things. way. That, yes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that cheapens sex so mm-hmm. much. Like, purity culture, the way they build it up is it cheapens what it is. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's all I have to say about that. I think that's a that. really
2: good that's a really really good thought. Like it it actually does. I think that purity culture strives to put sex on this pedestal and mm-hmm. elevate it um as as holy and pure and mm-hmm. and good and and sacred because it is for the marriage bed. Mm-hmm. But really when it turns into something that's really for the pleasure of men only because yep. women according to a lot of purity culture messages, don't have a sex drive. Women don't need sexual pleasure. Oh. Women don't care about sexual pleasure. Women then, aren't visual. Yes, women yeah. aren't visual. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And, <laughs> and that cheapens sex, it turns it into a transaction. Yeah. It turns it into a service provided to this man yep. rather than a, like, a moment of intimacy and bonding and love yeah. between two people.
1: And I look back and I think, because like you said, like women don't, quote unquote, have a sex drive, right? When I got married, it was like I was starving.
2: Hmm.
1: Poor James. For two years, I was just like, I needed so much sex because I was like, I was quenching that hunger and that thirst that I had been suppressing. And, And now, like we are working more on that deep connection that that emotional that spiritual experience that sex also is or at least mm. i am james is great i <laughs> am the one who's messed up cuz i was raised in purity culture but and that that is the journey right that is the work of women that have come out of this movement of reconnecting to your body and learn like embodying the fact that you are holy and good and Mm. there is spirit this is spiritual Mm. what is happening and it's with your person
0: yeah it was definitely kind of a mind trip for me to read this book because I grew up holding the purity message so dear to my heart um Mm. both my husband and I waited till marriage to have sex we both um were dedicated to it we both supported each other and like withholding and you know like both very much dedicated to the message and like um loved dearly the people who had raised us and taught us what they had taught us and raised Mm -hmm. us in and reading this book shifted a lot of thoughts for me in terms of like what this actually means and the implications it feels like the people that I loved so dearly had potentially delivered such a harmful message And so it's really kind of shifting, like, the overall perspective of what purity culture really is and what the motives are. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered, like, if anything shifted in, um, shifted for you about purity culture or even the evangelical movement when you read this book. One thing that I really was
2: disturbed by Mm -hmm. in the book uh, was the amount of actually, like, um, intermingling of church and state when it came to implementing purity culture. Mm. So she talks a lot in the beginning, especially about how um, there was government funding that was feeding into purity conferences and abstinence only teaching. Mm-hmm. And I was like, like I, I I know in my head, obviously, or maybe not, obviously but that our our government has lots of issues, that there's lots of corruption, that there's lots of problems. I know that. Um, but just, like, seeing that blatant, like, uh, basically, like, handshaking between church and state when we're supposed to be a separated church and state, uh, that was pretty disturbing to me, that, like, this is something that is bleeding into... Uh, quote-unquote secular culture. Mm. And I think that that's something that the church would actually see as a triumph mm. is that, oh, look, we have infiltrated, you know? Mm-hmm. We have we have made it into mainstream culture because we are getting funding to be able to do this mm. from the U.S. government. Yep. And um, with
0: no regard to, like, how effective it is or yeah. the effects of it. Oh, absolutely. Like the, Let me tell yeah. you how effective it is. Yeah.
1: Please, oh, I, tell
0: us. I have a quote. Yay.
2: Um, um, I'm going to drink what you tell it. Okay, great. Uh, can you hear us deteriorating? <laughs> whiskey hits us hard, I think. Whiskey
0: girls. Um,
2: <laughs> whiskey girls. So, okay, first of all, <laughs> I have a little... This I just think is funny, which I'll share with you guys, because my Kindle allows me to have little notes. It says... In 2008, federal funding for abstinence only until marriage programming was curbed under the Obama administration, and my note says, "Thanks, Obama." <laughs>
1: That's literally and what I was going to say. Yes. And Thanks, then Obama. on the
2: next page it says, "Dedicated federal abstinence only until marriage funding meaningfully increased again in 2016, bringing the total funding to 90 million for 2017." And then I said, "Thanks, Trump." <laughs> But the real thing that I'm wanting to read, I just thought that was funny because it's a definite parallel of different presidencies and the way that money is going to get allocated. Mm-hmm. Plus you're hilarious. Plus I'm hilarious, obviously. Thank you. But on page 28, it says, um, this is talking about research that people have done um, about abstinence-only education and its effectiveness. And so they say, to summarize, first, the researchers are finding that purity teachings do not meaningfully delay sex. Second, they are finding that they do increase shame, especially among females. And third, they report that this increased shame is leading to higher levels of sexual anxiety, lower levels of sexual pleasure, and the feeling among those experiencing shame that they are stuck feeling this way forever. Oh, and it doesn't get better with time it gets worse. And (laughs) there's, I mean, there's tons of studies that you can find out there in the world about how abstinence-only teaching is very ineffective and how there's actually incomparable or indistinguishable um, statistics of the amount of teenagers that are having sex, whether they're getting abstinence-only teaching or not, and in some cases higher when they're getting abstinence-only teaching because they don't understand what sex is. (laughs) And, um... Like that's that's infuriating mm-hmm. that they would say oh we're we're going to first that the U.S. government is going to fund this and support churches in doing this and support Christian organizations like the Silver Ring thing in teaching young people they need to just not have sex um, when some young people don't even have a concept of what sex is. Mm-hmm. And then that this is actually something that is not effective. Mm-hmm. Like you're saying, like, it. there's no regard to whether there's any scientific data
0: backing this up. Mm-hmm. Well, and that was, like, one of the things that struck home for me was one of the women that she interviewed was talking about how there's kind of a um, an emphasis towards, like, unplanned sex. Like, mm-hmm. if you prepare and you have condoms and you've thought through it and you know how to be safe, there uh, – it's considered like premeditation. Like mm-hmm. it's considered like, oh, you planned for this and you like um, still took action mm-hmm. as opposed to um, the feeling that, oh, if this just happens in the moment and we get swept up by our, you know, feelings, then it's like less bad.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so
0: a lot of Christians will actually avoid any conversations about safe sex because there's that level of premeditation as yeah as as if if it's a murder right as if it's a premeditated versus not and as if like thinking through your decision to have sex with someone is a bad thing yeah Mm
2: -hmm. it that's that's absolutely ridiculous and it's this idea that like first of all that you can like just quote-unquote slip up and have sex like when you slip up and accidentally take off all of your clothes and, like, there's a lot of actions that have to happen Well, and you that was what sex. was taught
0: to me. They were like, it's so dangerous. You're going to slip down this slippery slope and you just, like, you get to one point and then before you know it, your name And you just
2: fall on a penis. And yeah. <laughs> you're like, so. what? Repeatedly. <laughs> yeah. Repeatedly. Yeah,
1: and again and again. It's not,
0: yeah, the... It makes absolutely no sense. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rather than teaching people how to think through what makes a good partner, how can I make sure that I'm in a situation where I trust mm-hmm. the person that I'm with? And mm-hmm. how do I make, like, smart decisions about my sexuality and about who I want to have sex with? And how do mm-hmm. I do it safely? And how do I make sure that I'm preventing pregnancy if I'm not wanting to get pregnant, etc. Like, there's so much that's left out mm-hmm. and yeah. it's just like just don't do it and it's not actually effective in helping people not do it it's yeah. just causing people to do it unsafely and yep. without thought
2: yeah and i mean i actually i don't have a hard statistic on this off the top of my head but um i know that they're now finding that uh kids are more educated about sex now than than maybe like when we were when we were in high school mm-hmm. and they're seeing rates of teenagers having sex go down dramatically. Mm -hmm. Like, teenagers are choosing to wait longer and longer to have sex because they're more educated about it. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a direct correlation we're seeing between knowing, like, how to have safe safe sex and and knowing um, the ins and outs that leads to these kids actually making the decision to wait.
1: Yep. Two things I would like to say around this. Say it. One, states that favor um, abstinence-only teachings as part of their sex education have higher rates of pregnancy. Therefore, if you are not pro-choice, you must be pro-education, in my opinion. Mm. Two, the church condemns self-pleasure. Therefore... You see higher rates of pregnancy because you are not allowed to take care of your own sexual needs. You are reliant upon a partner. So there are two issues, in my opinion, that all revolve around education and how, again, this is the only part of your body you are not allowed to use for some reason. Like, I really, like, really is, like, you know, hitting it by yourself, really that horrible. Hitting it. It's also... (laughs) Like the safest form of sex. Like, there's no you risk of disease. Get <laughs> there's no risk of pregnancy. Like, honestly. Make sure you pee after. You can get a UTI. Yeah, that's actually you know, terrible.
0: You can Please. get that during sex,
1: too. But. Yeah, you can. Um, but I'm like, I feel like I, if one day when I'm a mom, if I'm a mom, I will probably encourage my kids. Like, obviously, not crazy, but it's like, hey, like, when you have an orgasm, actually, your brain is clear. You've got all those hormones flushed out of your system. like, And then, actually, you're not walking around feeling like a ticking time bomb that's going to explode with sexual need.
2: So Yeah. I mean, and then also, like, maybe you can make informed, more informed choices about, like, who your partner is. Yes. Because you're not focused on... I trying to satisfy need- a sexual desire, yes, you know, like you're you're not looking to them to be the sole provider of that. You're instead looking at them in a more well-rounded way as your life partner. Who, yes, like you also get to bum uglies with whatever, but <laughs> you're you're not looking at um, them as that sole provider.
1: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I
2: think that that might be healthier.
1: I think mm-hmm. so too, because if you are looking for someone else to fulfill a need you will not be able to fulfill that need whatever it is without that person and then also that places your personal responsibility upon them and in a way then in spiritual sense they become your god and that breeds codependency and Mm
0: -hmm. unhealthy relationship and yeah all sorts of things Mm -hmm. yeah and oh man
2: yeah and i mean we've already touched on this a bit but like you're not going to, like, not want to have sex with your guy because you've self-pleasured. Of you know? course. That, that doesn't eliminate them from the equation. Mm-hmm. There's – it's a whole different situation totally. of enjoyment, of interaction, of intimacy. Like, that That doesn't eliminate it and it doesn't demasculate them, which is just no. the stupidest argument.
1: It's so I've ever heard. <laughs> oh. It's like, I remember – A real I mean, man's not going to be demasculated. Yeah. If they right, do feel that. demasculated –
2: Dump their, ass. <laughs> dump their
1: ass. I think, um, slight tangent, but I, I remember hearing that, like, it is the worst thing you could do to a man is demasculate him. And I'm like, sorry, uh, demasculization is a man giving permission to not feel masculine. Yikes. Okay, so I feel like we're heading in this direction. So I feel like
0: <laughs> since we're already heading in that direction, let's just, like, acknowledge it. I just wanted to create space for us to share our angry feminist moment from reading this book. Mm -hmm. Like, if there's anything that you read and you just need to rant about, this is your moment here. Mm -hmm. Just give it away.
1: Oh, that's a good question, Kelly. I'm going to need to just look through the book real quick. That is fine. Take your time. Take your time. (laughs) Discuss.
0: I'm sure there's plenty of rage to go around.
2: Oh, there's so so much rage. So much rage. (laughs) One thing, which this is like such a small thing um, in the book, I feel like, but in the very beginning, page five, Mm. right at the start Kindle edition. Kindle edition, (laughs) page five. uh, The woman, Linda K. Klein, who wrote the book, she recounts uh, this story of her with her high school boyfriend and how she feels that. God is leading her to break up with him and all these things, but on page 5 she says this like prayer, and she says, "'Dear Jesus, Dean is a sweet gift from you. Please don't allow me to destroy this gift that you have given me with foolish passion. Dean doesn't want to push me. He respects me. How far we go is in my hands, but I don't want it there because I don't know where exactly you do and don't approve of my hands being.' Father, please show me what is too far. And so this enraged me. It reminded me very much of my high school relationship um, in that this is putting all of the responsibility of purity onto the woman. So this is saying, she says, Oh, Dean doesn't want to push me too far. But who's, if they're making out, if they're, you know, bumping uglies and they're, In the horizontal position, as our pastor would call it in high school, don't
1: go horizontal. Don't do the horizontal position. Told.
2: Yes, Uh, there are two people that are responsible in that situation, and there's so many stories within this book that touch on that idea of putting the responsibility solely onto the woman. And I felt so much pressure to maintain the purity of my high school relationship. Because he would constantly, like, try to push us further, push us to something else. And, like, I wanted that, too. But I was the only one who was willing or able or whatever to be like, oh, wait, we need to hold on. Oh, wait, we need to slow Mm -hmm. down. And then I'm the bad guy. Mm -hmm. The woman is the bad guy, is the prude, Mm -hmm. is the like the watchdog over purity but the man takes no responsibility for mm-hmm. it the man is just animalistic the man can't help it because he's just sexual
1: oh and but, then he gets blue balls yeah like it's, it's so hard it's abs literally <laughs>
2: it's absolutely ridiculous because it it it's this is why women have so much repress, repressed sexuality because they're told not only are you not sexual, but also you have to manage the sexuality mm-hmm. of your partner until you get married. Mm-hmm. You have to be the, the, the steward of this, even though you're, you're not supposed to lead the relationship. You're not supposed to be the leader. You shouldn't tell the man what to do, but if you have sex, it's your fault. Mm.
0: That actually reminds me of something that I wasn't thinking of. That did make me mad was how so many women and she she provides I think two or three different examples of this of women who go to pastors because post marriage they're having trouble with their sexuality and they're like I either sex is painful or they're having anxiety around sex or whatever and every time the pastor advises them to think back into their past sexual sin and repent of it. Mm -hmm. And there was one case where a woman said she felt guilty because her um, now husband um, had pushed her farther than she wanted to go, and she felt like she was now paying for it in their marriage. Mm -hmm. And the pastor advised her to go repent of that Mm -hmm. sin, completely forgetting, like, oh, you're partner was pushing you past what you were comfortable with like yep. oh like he maybe wasn't, you don't
1: trust them
0: like he yeah. wasn't respecting you and your space and what you wanted like there was no conversation of that it was just oh repent yeah and your sexual you problems will be solved wrong. yeah
2: like ugh, that I is placed so mad onto the woman rather than recognizing there's two people involved in this and also that like i mean in many of these situations and at least in my situations I feel like it was often the man actually trying to escalate things mm-hmm. and trying to push into further levels of intimacy and sexuality. And it's the woman who's told you need to stop it or else it's your fault. Yep. And and the man in that situation was not told, oh, you should repent as well. Well, it's your fault for putting him in
0: that situation in the first place.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. How dare you? Yeah. You
0: probably wore too tight of a shirt or too short of a skirt. You let him on. Yeah. He can't help himself once you let him on. You batted it's your like eyelashes. like a snowball rolling down a hill he can't help himself My eyelashes <laughs> <That's> so stupid
1: <laughs> it
2: is
1: <sighs> did you find one Kelly? girl okay I found two oh, that I would about to read out two So, in the episode called The Tigress. The episode. The episode. In the chapter Chapter. called The Tigress. Thank you very much, Whiskey. Thank you very much, Whiskey. It says, The purity movement teaches us that a pure woman comes to her husband, an untouched virgin, who has hardly, if ever, thought about sex before. Then naturally and beautifully, the woman's new husband introduces his wife to sexuality for the first time in years of pent up sexual energy, which she has not even which she was not even aware of coming of coming out of her, allowing her to meet her new husband's every sexual want, which is also her every sexual want. And together they live happily ever after. Both represent. Both the repressed sexuality of the virgin and the fully surrendered sexuality of the wife are required in purity culture. One being fabled to lead the other. What? It's so true. This is what's taught, and it's absolute bullshit. Bullshit. Absolutely bullshit. bullshit. Um, I'm sorry. If you're sexually repressed before you get married, you will be sexually repressed after you get married, unless you. you do the work, queen.
2: Um, Also, the idea that every single sexual desire of the man will be equally as desired by the woman...
0: Fulfilling your every need. No, No, that is
2: ridiculous. I can tell you from firsthand experience... Some people like to kiss in certain ways. Other people, people don't. don't. <laughs> like, there's preferences. Yep. There's position. There's all sorts of things that yep. are different. And, like, sure, you can, like, satisfy your partner's needs. And mm-hmm. then they can turn around and satisfy your needs. But that doesn't mean that your needs are going to be exactly the same. No. They just aren't. What?
1: Well, well, also, <laughs> well, like, this, like, idea that like your husband has this laundry list of sexual desires. My husband's like, I'm so happy I get to have sex with you. The end. Like what do you <laughs> want to do? You tell me. Like he does not care. Like mm. his experience will be the same. He will achieve climax by the end of our session.
2: The end. Our session. It's our like you're session. A therapist.
0: <laughs>
2: so
1: anyway, I just Kellyanne, think i'm the
2: sex therapist. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think this could be a thing, honestly, if we're you know if we're talking about it. I mean, yeah. So I, would want, I wanted to draw attention to that because it yeah. is essentially embedded in every purity culture teaching. And then secondly, I would like to bring attention to the chapter called Family Values, in which uh, we see a perfect example of a mother expressing concern of her youth pastor's teachings to her children. Um, And this is a little bit halfway through the paragraph, so bear with me. I went to the head pastor and told him. I didn't go in there screaming and yelling, shaking my fist at him, but he dismissed me so fast. It was so embarrassing. What I remember is being just embarrassed because the times that I did speak with the quote-unquote men of the church, she said making air quotations, I was so dismissed. She asked, Uh, Linda asks, do you remember what his response—read about his response felt dismissive? And she said, the nonverbals. You know nonverbally when someone is dismissing you. You've been dismissed by men. You've been dismissed plenty of times, Linda. It's the lack of eye contact. It's in the tone of voice. It's in the words they choose and the utter lack of concern. There is utter lack of concern and i think for me that what made me angry and feel very feminist and ranty about that is the reality that this happens all the time men don't care about what women have to say and it's brushed off as emotional or you are overly concerned or you're an overbearing mother or you know, a controlling wife or whatever label they want to put on it. And truly, it's them protecting power. They're saying, you have an issue with the way I'm doing things. Therefore, I'm going to dismiss you and make you feel small. Because you know what? I know what's best. I'm the man of the household. Oofta. Oofta.
0: <laughs> Oofta. You're so Midwest. Oh, Minnesotans. There you are. I did that for you. So, Not even just Minnesotans. Midwesterns. Yeah. Sirs. All right. So I'm going to tell you what made me mad. Tell us. Um, dish it out. Dish it out. Rosemary's story. She's one of the um, interviewees. And um, she actually experienced verbal abuse and verbal sexual abuse from her brother in her home and um, tried to call it out to her parents and her parents did nothing, Yeah, essentially. Mm-hmm. Didn't believe her uh, to the point that later on she was raped by her brother. And um, her parents, in addressing the issue, didn't also really do anything. And kind of, essentially, it came out from their brother's um, rendition of what happened that she hadn't resisted, um, which her trauma response was to freeze in that moment but that she hadn't resisted and therefore was partially at fault. So her parents saw it as both of her and her brother's fault. And so um, the expert I wanted to read here. Excerpt. Excerpt. What did I say? Expert. Expert. (laughs) Expert. The whiskey people. Um, (laughs) Talking about her fear and discomfort around her brother didn't get Rosemary the attention she needed. And so it essentially talks about how she... Um, tried to get attention through other means and that her parents sent her to therapy. Um, And her brother's sexual propositions and threats, which resulted in brief conversations reflect the purity culture's movement, the purity movements, values, and norms. Generally speaking, purity culture excuses male sexuality and And amplifies female sexuality, and it shames consensual sexual activity and silences non-consensual sexual activity. So essentially, like, men, they're, like, kind of reprimanded, but women bear the brunt of the shame. And um, consensual sexual activity is something to be ashamed of. And when something is not consensual, it's silenced. Yeah. And that, I think, Has evidenced again and again in the church that anytime there's rape sexual assaults the church just covers it up it's like it doesn't count they're like we're not going to address this
2: yeah i mean it makes me think of um i mean we talk about this in our episode that should come out right before this of why are women afraid Mm -hmm. that the church focuses on these ideas of Uh, sexual assault or rape or whatever that are very fantastical and out there and that are sort of the fringe examples and don't focus that this actually could happen within your own home. And more often does happen within your own home or your own circle of friends or family members or coworkers Mm -hmm. or churchgoers. Mm -hmm. It's gonna happen with people that you know and the church refuses to recognize that. And the church also chooses to um, like cover up uh, like rape and non-consensual sex for the sake of
0: its reputation, reputation. Mm-hmm. well here's the second part of that sexual violence perpetrated by those within the con- community in particular is strictly censored as it challenges the pure slash impure binary upon which the purity movement is based the binary demands that predators are outsiders though 7 out of 10 rapes are perpetrated by someone known to the victim that is even more likely among juvenile victims. And 55% of sexual assaults take place at or near a victim's home. So the purity culture narrative essentially wants to communicate, and I think we've talked about this, but like this is where it's sort of strictly being stated. The purity culture movement depends on sexual perpetrators being outside of the church community. Mm -hmm. And whenever things happen within the church community, which is, like it said, seven out of ten times, it's ignored because it doesn't support the narrative. Yeah. And that makes me mad because we're just completely ignoring the statistics
1: of what are actually happening to women
0: for the sake of preserving our own messaging.
1: Yeah. And then in, you know, we see in chapter three. Um, where this woman has been sexually assaulted and – or she's been gang raped actually. And her father says, I am a pastor. Mm-hmm. The congregation, if they find out about this, will, will affect my validity as a pastor, my authority, my reputation. I'm like, how dare you? Worry about your reputation when your daughter has been sexually violated and your option for her is you can move home or be disowned. You choose.
2: Yeah. It's (sighs) like what if the church instead looked at statistics like seven out of ten sexual assaults happening near the the survivor's home and said oh we should adapt to that
0: well actually that leads me into a surprise question i have for both of you surprise surprise and um i left it a surprise because i didn't want you to premeditate on this
2: oh but you've been planning i've been planning this it's been a
0: premeditated surprise
2: whoa which is
0: (sighs) do you think I think that – or let me let me pre- preface this with I've always felt like there were good intentions behind the purity movement for my benefit, right? Mm. That, like, I truly believe that the church wants what's best for me, that, um, that my dad, that the authority figures in my life have done what they've done and make the choices that they've made to the best of their understanding for the purpose of – me being successful in the world, me being pure, me being close to God. Do you think that's true? Like, do you think that the purity movement is a result of good intentions?
2: Honestly, I have a really hard time with the idea of good intentions. Um, I think that people tend to want to keep the power that they have people are constantly trying to conserve and maintain their position of power. And I mean, even myself, like I am guilty of that as well. And I think that when I hear this, this narrative that like the church always has good intentions at heart, I'm like, I I don't, I don't care. (laughs) I don't care if there were these quote unquote good intentions. And maybe there's plenty of like church members who have really bought into this narrative, but the people that are the sources of these narratives, I don't think have good intentions. I think that they're trying to maintain their position as pastors of influential, influential churches, that they're trying to maintain their position as being a voice of, of reason or of influence within a community. And I think that we've seen historically white men um, trying to, Keep women in a certain position. So when I look at purity culture, I see its roots. Um, And I think that, sure, maybe some people have been brainwashed by their roots, but the reason that those roots are tantalizing and are tempting to other white men um, or to people in any position of authority is because it does oppress women. And so even if they have these good intentions that they hide behind or that they like wrap it around, that they reason with themselves with it around, it, it doesn't justify it to me. To me, it's it's still rooted in this idea that they want to keep power even if they don't themselves recognize it. And it's this idea of wanting to have, have control, have control over your daughters and what they do have control of your daughter's sexuality. Like I, that's understandable to an extent. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, if I you had children, I get mm-hmm. that you want to keep them safe and protected and like innocent, but like your kid's going to go through stuff. That's just the way that life is. Mm-hmm. You can't keep them from that. And like if, if a, a parent chooses to like give this narrative to their daughter as a way to like quote unquote protect them i i can't think of that as wholly innocent because it's it's such an we've found it to be such an oppressive system and so i i honestly maybe i'm hypercritical of the the good intentions notion but it's something that i tend to buck at honestly Mm.
1: Yeah, I think I I definitely see where you're coming from. I think I agree to an extent, but I do think there's a level of brainwashing that goes on in the church. And I don't think people know how to think critically for themselves. And yes, there may be like underlying tones of like power, but honestly, I don't think people think deeply enough to actually recognize that. Um, I mean, I feel like a great example is Amish communities. They're, they're all on women, like crazy, like covered up, repressive, that situation. And I know there's a lot of beauty in those communities. But I like in a community where there's typically lower levels of education, they're all coming from the same space. Like I, I think – we're to the point with purity culture where we're starting to see victims victimizing other people like Joshua Harris for example he tried to rise to the metrics of success he was given and those were the tools he knew to make that happen and So, part of me has compassion now for him because he was brought up in the same culture that has been so damaging to us. But at the time, he was like, wait, I can make this successful and I can help other people make it successfully. I don't know that he was like, I'm going to shame a generation of women to maintain power and get profit. I think. Yeah, I mean, there's a level of he sold millions of books. That's amazing. He probably really loved that. And that's probably why he continued to write books. But part of me thinks he has been victimized, maybe not to the same extent as the rest of us, or as women. But I'm like, man, he was told success looks like something. And he tried to achieve that. Yeah, that's a great point. I think
0: what differentiates Joshua Harris for me from other pastors and leaders that I've seen mm-hmm. is he has recognized the damage that's fair. that his books and his ministry have caused. Mm-hmm. And he has repented and he has apologized. Yeah. And to me, that that's when I think you get maybe— Maybe this is a bad way of saying it, but that's when you get the good intentions like right off mm. is when you actually look at the evidence mm-hmm. and realize, wow, I messed this up. Let me acknowledge that because I think him acknowledging that was what allowed so many women, men, LGBTQ to like pursue healing. Mm hmm. And seeing like, oh, yeah, you did mess up. Okay, we can move forward as a a society. Um, What's hard for me in considering the good intentions, which I think, I I don't think the good intentions don't exist. I think there are so many potentially brainwashed or um, hungry for approval or Mm -hmm. good Christian people who genuinely want to do right by God. Mm -hmm. And do right by their kids and do right by their church um, who have fallen victim or maybe even victim is the right word, but they have been deceived by Mm. poor messaging directed at their youth. Um, What I have a problem with is... When women come forward, when people come forward and they say, "Hey, actually this is the effect of what you said." Mm-hmm. The response is to dismiss, shut it down, deny, shut it down, cover up, or just ignore. yeah um, And that to me is painful. I think um, my dad and I have had several conversations um following the the podcast where I talk about modesty. We have two podcasts actually about it if you want to check those out from season one. Mm -hmm. And um, he comes back to me and he's like, I was doing whatever I could do to protect you. Like, I was doing whatever I could do to keep you from, like, getting abducted or raped or, like, the worst possible scenario. Mm -hmm. But there's not actually a recognition of, like, oh, I caused harm to you yeah, in a different way, and for that, I apologize. Yeah. Like, that part is missing, mm-hmm. and I think that part is missing not just with me and my dad, but with me and the church as a whole. Yes. Um, the evangelical church as a whole, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, it's missing that piece of, like, I'm sorry that we caused harm. Yeah. And um, and so I think, like, the reason I asked this question and the reason I'm bringing it up now is, like, I think I had a realization as I was preparing for this episode and reading through this book that, like, yes, I don't think it was – I don't think it started out of bad intentions or malicious mm-hmm. reasoning. But I think once people started coming forward and saying, hey, this actually isn't working. Like, maybe yeah. we should, like, try something else. I think that's the point at which it stops – It's innocent intentions and starts becoming a a reservation of power or a a lack of compassion Mm -hmm. or a willful choosing of ignorance. Mm -hmm. I don't know what what it becomes, but it doesn't become a mistake anymore. It becomes intentional at that point for me.
1: Yeah, when you can't say I didn't know anymore. I think I definitely agree with that.
2: That's so – there's a couple things that are really interesting to me in that, which is one, like, I I think that that is valuable, recognizing, like, okay, I actually don't know the mindset of somebody who is touting these beliefs. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't look at a Joshua Harris back in his prime – and some other purity uh, teacher like, and say, well, this one has good intentions and this one doesn't because they're they're saying the same thing. Right. But I can look now at a Joshua Harris who has been repentant, who has recognized the error of his ways, um, who has apologized and say, OK, yeah, like there was probably a level of you yourself being brainwashed by this idea of yourself having good intentions and trying to be this good Christian, um, but you you didn't know anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then looking at someone who doesn't have that level of repentance. And I I can't say that you're not still brainwashed or that you are choosing to actively buy into maintaining your power, mm-hmm. right? I don't know what somebody's thinking. Yeah. Um, but – One thing that you mentioned, which was that idea that the source of, like, purity teaching comes from good intentions. And that's one thing that I think I have a hard time with Mm -hmm. is that I see the way that women have been treated historically Mm -hmm. um, in Western culture for the past thousand, Mm -hmm. two thousand years. And I can't say comfortably that Teachings of purity are coming from good intentions. Mm. Like I I look at uh, the way that women are framed in, in biblical times and the way that women are seen as second-class citizens. And mm. I can't say that women being told they need to maintain their purity is not a way – just another way to oppress them. Mm. Um, to me, it, it's rooted all the way back. Uh, to, to the, the the most basic forms of of society that we've had. Even if you if you look at uh, a Greek democracy, like men were the citizens there, men were the people who had a say in government, and and that's not even that's that that's a totally secular form of government. But it, it it's informing the way that we have run. Hmm. Nations, the way that we have run churches, the way that we have run this religion of Christianity. And so I have a hard time hmm. saying this is rooted ultimately in good intentions and then when people turn a, like r- hear that maybe this wasn't, that they have the choice to then go one way or the other, in my mind it's actually the opposite. It's that this is actually rooted in bad intentions, in intentions to oppress women and that then when they hear, oh, this might not actually be okay versus this is actually a way for you to maintain power. It's a choice they make there from that to me Mm. that differentiates who has these like quote unquote good intentions and who is actually just in it for themselves and doesn't care about the humanity of these women. But I, don't, I mean, obviously, I'm not a historian. I'm not a sure. an expert on, yeah. like, the ways that women have been oppressed across um, the history of humanity. But that's, that's the way that it, it comes in my mind.
0: Yeah. Well, And for me, when I am talking about purity culture and, like, the beginnings of it, I'm referring to the sexual revolution in the 70s and 80s and the church pretty much being completely silenced. Uh, silenced on sex up until like late 80s early 90s so the response like purity culture is a response to the sexual revolution Mm -hmm. it's a it's a coming out of silence on the church's part about sex and what god says about sex where previously it had been quite silent for centuries and i think the response was like whoa slow your roll Mm -hmm. let's try and educate people on what the Bible says about sex. Um, And I think it was based on the church's understanding of the Bible at the time in combination with a a desire for people to be pure and for people to do what God had said. Um, But in a sense, like, I I see what you're saying. It's like, regardless of where it started or what the... um, perceived intentions are it's still built on a history Mm -hmm. of the oppression of women and without recognizing those systematic issues like any system that we set up is is set up to fail Mm
1: -hmm. yeah good surprise question good
0: surprise question i mean i just i think i just had a realization like oh my gosh i've been making excuses for the church all this time like Mm. is it is it really Worth my time to be making excuses for them. Why am yeah. I defending them? Um, not that I think the church is bad. um I think we're just broken mm-hmm. and in need of a recognition, sorry, a recognition <laughs> of our our humanity mm-hmm. and um and the structures that have been in place for so long that are unfair, yeah. And unequal and um, unChrist-like, but yeah, I think I just want to uh, make that be known. And as we close, I wanted to open up space for any final takeaways from the book that either of you had.
2: So, one of the big takeaways for me uh, from the book was this idea that there is no rule that we need to follow that's hard and fast you know Mm. like the church i feel especially the church in the past hundred years or so has been hyper focused on rules and a set of of things that you can follow in order to be good a Mm. set of things that you can follow in order to be approved and um I mean, this is something that I've talked about in other podcast episodes as well. Um, We touch on this idea, I think, in the cancel culture episode, um, and I think probably in other ones. But on page 144 of the Kindle edition, Kindle, please sponsor us. Um, (laughs) uh, She says, they hold on to the good, bad binary they were taught growing up. They just swap everything around on it. In their new reverse binary, evangelicalism goes from good to bad. The secular world goes from bad to good. Sex outside of marriage goes from bad to good. Abstinence goes from good to bad. But most of my interviewees eventually have come to the conclusion that the binary itself is the problem. From here, they become uniquely sensitized to fundamentalism in all forms, distrusting any community that claims they have all the answers that assumes they are all right and that those they oppose are all wrong, be that community conservative or progressive, religious or secular. And this is something I've really resonated with lately, is the idea that good and bad is not the binary that we need to work from. We can't look at things as black and white. The world is in full color there is a wide range of what the world looks like, and so to say this is good and this is bad, that it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It, it it's not compatible with us as human beings, mm-hmm. uh, because because we are not just this this duality. Like we are complexity, we are nuance, we are all shades, <laughs> and that's one thing that i feel like was my biggest takeaway from this i don't feel like i have all the answers even about my own personal like sex life my own personal like sexuality i don't feel like i have all the answers to that and maybe i never will but i i feel like there's so much room to figure that out and to understand it and it's okay to not be in one camp or one other camp mm. it, it's okay to actually be um in process because we're always all we are all always in process mm-hmm. yeah. and uh whether you're married or you're not married or you're in a relationship or you're sleeping around or whatever like there is always process and it's okay to be in the midst of that uh, and Uh, That was one thing that I found really valuable from the book is that she emphasized so much that there is – there's not one right way to do this, Mm. you know? It's okay to choose abstinence. It's okay to choose to have sex. It's okay to choose something in between. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and I mean that's something, like I said, I'm still working through, that I'm still – understanding and coming to my own conclusions about but I found that really valuable and I like that she leaves it uh open-ended in that way
0: Mm -hmm. yeah definitely one of the things that stuck with me the most was um kind of a a reminder of the first and second commandment which Mm -hmm. is to love the lord your god with all your heart soul and mind and number two to love your neighbor as yourself so in in that, um, there's three three directives. One, love of God, love of others, and love of self. Mm-hmm. And I think if we're not considering all three in a holistic way, we are denying one or the other or mm-hmm. any or all. Um We cannot love others if we don't love ourselves. We cannot love ourselves if we don't love others. We cannot love God if we don't love others and ourselves. We can't love Mm ourselves and others if we don't love God.
1: Um,
0: And so, um, making sure that everything that we do and say, and systems that we create, and Um, things that we go after are based on those three things like am I loving God am I loving others am I loving myself in this Mm -hmm. and I think what the purity movement has denied for so long is the love of self yep yeah it's kind of actually been a hatred of self
1: Mm -hmm. it has and if
0: we hate self we don't love others Mm -hmm. and we don't love God Um, we have just become slaves to a rule and a directive um, instead of free to um, be fully ourselves.
2: Yeah. Yep.
0: I mean, to me, in a way,
2: that's that's a form of, of trinity, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. It's that idea that y- you need each corner of that triangle. Love God, love self, love others. Like That is necessary for that structure to to be maintained. And if you lose one, you don't have that perfect union anymore.
1: I'd mm-hmm. mm-hmm. like to read a quick excerpt from... The final chapter. <gasps>
2: the final chapter. Not an expert.
1: Not an, an expert. excerpt. Remember the old nursery rhyme? The one that you would always do with your hands. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors and see all the people. I've come to believe that this is just how it is. The church is made up of us. Our hands. We are the church. We are the steeple. We are the doors and we are the people. No company, no institution, no pastor can tell us whether we are in or out because it is us. You can choose the church or not. It's up to you. But no one can choose for you because if you choose it, it already is you. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the awakening that's happening right now. I feel like there is a wave of people leaving the traditional Christian faith for the realization that I don't need all these things to commune with God. I don't need, you know, to comply to purity culture. I don't need to um, fall within the expected, normal um family, what do you call Roles, dynamics, Roles, dynamics yes. all those things, that there's this, this revelation of love of self, like you mentioned. Um, and people are saying, you know what, I am the church and I get to decide what it looks like for me and what it needs to look like for my life. And I think for the first time, instead of us trying to push ourselves into a mold to fit into the church, we are breaking down a lot of those molds Mm -hmm. and saying, you know what? Jesus loves me and that's what matters. I love him back and we're going to figure out this messy life together.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think, um, That's a great place to close. And Linda K. Klein closes her book with this as well. um, She asks her mom the question, like, do you think God's hand is on me um, anymore? Mm -hmm. Essentially, after having been through all of these interviews and and creating kind of an expose on the church where she Mm -hmm. reveals a lot of dirty underbelly um, and a lot of the pain that it's caused and kind of the fear that in exposing that people will be lost to hell, you know, um, that, that kind of question remains like, am I good? Have I, um, have I done what's right? Is God's hand on me? Um, and she sort of walks away with the realization that like, yes, God's hand is on you. Um, but it doesn't have to look like what the church says that it has to look like and, um, I think that's what a lot of deconstructing Christians are faced with is that, um, that very much life or death question. Um, but I think rather than asking like, am I good? It maybe is more of a question of, am I loved
1: mm-hmm.
0: and do I love? And those are the things that God has placed most importantly in our faith at the end of the day.
2: Yeah that's actually a question that made me think of us and our podcast, um, is I, I'm, I'm curious if you guys have felt this Is like, is this what God wants? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, are we, um, I think Linda talks about this almost like fear of like, "Quote unquote," leading people astray, leading people to hell, leading Mm -hmm. people down this dark path, and um, I think that uh, when you talk about the type of things that we talk about here on Woman Being, it's there's there could be this fear of like we are leading people down a slippery slope, if you will, (laughs) Um, or that we are causing people to. God forbid, question things. And and I mean, I think you can tell a little bit by the way that I've I've said this and maybe a little bit of sarcasm that I have around it is that I actually think questioning is good and I think that it's valuable and that it should be part of our faith and and part of the way that we interact with religion and with God. Uh, but I it definitely made me think of of us and and of thinking like, are we are we doing the right thing? Thing,
1: mm-hmm.
2: You know, mm-hmm.
0: when I think like a lack of questioning is what led to the Inquisition, a lack of questioning is what led to the purity culture movement being rampant and damaging and mm-hmm. like a wildfire across the lives and sexuality and well-being of women everywhere. Like, mm-hmm. I think um, a lack of questioning is a lack of reason. It's a lack of consideration for other people. And um, it doesn't—it doesn't fight to find peace mm. for um,
1: the world. I understand the question though, because I definitely have felt afraid. I like guess mm. certain at a certain level, I am leaving behind the mindsets I was raised with, and potentially burning bridges with people that I've done life with. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people that have known me the majority of my life, my community, Mm -hmm. my old quote-unquote community. And there is a level of grief with that that is painful. But when I think of what God would think or say, I think of one of the last things my granddad told me when I moved out to California. For ministry school, he just said, Kelly, you give him hell, sis, and that's what I feel from God. Mm. I don't feel this concern of you deceitful woman or you could possibly be leading someone astray. He's like, I've been on this journey now for several years where I'm just like, I'm launching myself into the gray and trusting God will catch me. And I don't feel disapproval from him.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that's what
1: matters. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Kelly Ann, for sharing that. I think that's um, a question I share. And I i mean, anyone who's going through any sort of deconstruction process, whether it's a holistic one or a sub- subject-based one or um, or whatever, like, those questions are kind of the, like, elephant in the room. They're mm-hmm. sort of... The overarching big question: Am I good? Uh, does God approve of me? Um, have I done right by Him? And um, yeah, I think truly it's about um, it just circles back: love God, love people, love self. And um, and so I think a lot of people would resonate with that. And um, that leads me to my final question: Is this book "Pure" by Linda K. Klein, woman being approved?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Must read for all women who have made it through purity culture.
2: Yeah. I definitely think it would feel a bit uh, jarring to someone who maybe isn't familiar with purity culture, mm-hmm. although she does define a lot of the terms mm-hmm. very Plainly, some of them it was kind of funny to read the definitions of because I was like, oh, well, I mean, <laughs> I knew what this meant. It's, like, very basic. It's, like, defining food or something. Yeah. But it's helpful for people who are not familiar. Um, and so it could be helpful if you have people in your life who have been through purity culture as well,
0: mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say it's, like, an essential. It's, like, a 101 type of woman being book. If you no. want to know <laughs> where any of us came from or um, – Like, why this podcast was started or why we decided to talk about the types of topics that we talk about, this book is it. It's uh, got it all. So um, thank you both for sharing today, for reading this book, for writing down your thoughts and being so um, thoughtful and intentional today. Of course. Absolutely. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, You're welcome. No, I was really excited to review this, even though it is a doozy. And I will remind people. This book is a doozy. Just take your time, prioritize your own mental health, set it down when you need to, chew on it when you need to, get a friend to drink whiskey with when you need to, because <laughs> um, it will take an emotional toll, especially if you've been through the purity culture movement.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, I want to remind you that you can follow us on Instagram at Woman Being Podcast. You can listen to us on pretty much Any place podcasts are found, including... Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, slash Audible. Apple Podcasts. Stitcher. I
2: already said Apple. Oh. That was the first one. Also Apple Podcasts. And YouTube. Apple Podcasts. And Apple Podcasts. And Apple Podcasts. And
0: YouTube. And And YouTube. we're all over the place. (laughs) If you haven't found us, that's not our fault. It's on you. (laughs) And, um... Yeah. Like love your engagement, love people who have been commenting and DMing us and kind of uh, sharing your experience. Would love to know what your experience was with purity culture. Yes. Um, some of you may have had great experiences with it. If so, we want to hear it. Um, mm-hmm. We do not deny that there are people who grew up in the movement and it was super beneficial to them. So, um, but yeah, a lot of you might have um, some trauma and may be experiencing some trauma diarrhea right now listening to this. So we recognize that we affirm you and we want to hear from you. Yeah. Um, And with all that being said, have a great week. Bye. Bye. Bye.